0: And if we're not worshipping Christ, we will be worshipping something else. If we're not being formed by Christ, we will be being deformed by something else.
1: Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Centre for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. Today on the Christ and Culture podcast, Dr. Quinn will talk with Dr. Dan Strange about making faith magnetic. And after that, we'll have another edition of our segment on my bookshelf.
2: But first, it's time for our new segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about Thanksgiving.
1: Next weekend, families all across the country will gather around tables to celebrate Thanksgiving. But what do you do if a member of your family has food allergies? So here to discuss is our own Megan Dickerson. Megan serves as the grant administrator here at the Center for Faith and Culture. Megan, thanks for joining us today.
3: Thanks, Dr. Keithley. It's good to be here.
1: Megan, what is your family's experience with food allergies?
3: Yeah, so our family, we have four kids, and all four of them are affected by food allergies and intolerances in different ways. We found out about our oldest son's allergies before he was a year old, so we're 11 years into the food allergies journey, and it feels pretty natural to us by now.
1: So why why should we be aware of food allergies?
3: You know, every year I hear of more and more kids with peanut allergies or other nut allergies or adults who are finding out that maybe they're gluten or dairy intolerant. And it's one more way to serve our friends and family members that we can provide food for them and love them in, in this special way um, through the holidays.
1: So what are some of the ways our listeners can serve family members uh, with food allergies this holiday season?
3: I think one of the biggest ways is, is labeling our food. If you know that somebody has a gluten or dairy or nut allergy, just stick a note next to the dish that says that it has one of those things. Because it's really easy when I'm cooking at home, I know what we can and can't eat. And I just assume that when we go somewhere, the people would make it food the same way. Last year, my son has a real severe pecan allergy. And I, when I make our sweet potato casserole, I never put pecans in it. And so I just didn't think that almost everybody puts pecans in their sweet potato casserole. And I fed it to him. And sure enough, head to toe, he broke out in hives. Because um, I just didn't think about it. I should have. Um, and I just didn't think about it. So labeling food is really helpful. Or even preparing one special thing. Uh, one of my friends is, loves to bake and has a friend with gluten and dairy intolerance. And so she has learned to bake without gluten or dairy. And she does it regularly for her friend to serve her and love her well.
2: And that's a good word. Thank you, Megan. Before we hop into our Christ and Culture conversation with Dr. Dan Strange, let me share one brief opportunity with you. Do you want to equip students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission? Here's one simple way to do so. Giving Tuesday. Giving Tuesday is on Tuesday, November 29th, and we at Southeastern Seminary are aiming for 500 gifts by the end of the day. So your gift, no matter how small, plays a critical role in preparing our students for ministry preparation around the world. And get this, every gift will be matched dollar for dollar, but only on Giving Tuesday. So mark your calendars for November 29th, and be part of fulfilling the mission Through Southeastern Seminary.
4: How can we make our faith magnetic? And yes, I meant the word magnetic. Here to discuss this question is Dr. Daniel Strange. Dr. Strange is not the hero of the movies that you're thinking about, instead, he is the director of Crosslands Forum a Center for Cultural Engagement and Missional Innovation, as well as a dear friend to Southeastern. Dr. Strange, thank you for joining us today.
0: It's great to be here, Ben.
4: I have to ask the question, how often do you get asked about Dr. Strange movies?
0: Uh, A lot. And as I said in chapel this morning, uh, there are some interesting things because my middle name is Stephen. My wife is also a doctor. Oh, wow. And my... Dad wasn't born with the name Strange. He came from South America, Guyana, and he chose the name Strange when he come, came to the UK. So, as uh, you Americans would say, go yeah. figure. I don't yeah.
4: Know. That's, okay. So, Sorry. correction Sorry. Yeah. and live edit here. This is the real Dr. Strange. <laughs> yeah. The movies you've been watching are inspired by true events. We'll let exactly. him. That's a separate podcast. But, Dr. Strange, again, thank you for joining us today. Your right. recent book is entitled Making Fa- Faith Magnetic. Making Faith Magnetic. What do you mean by this?
0: Yeah, the whole premise of the book, Ben, is um, I, I wonder whether in our Western cultural context at the moment, we're struggling to get traction with where the culture is in terms of wanting to proclaim the glorious, great news of the gospel, and it's how do we get traction with people who seem to have no interest or um, just are living their lives. And so it's the book is about... How can we be magnetic? How can we be magnetized to Christ so others will be magnetized to him? How can the church be magnetic? And are there ways of understanding what the Bible says about people that would make it possible to have more um, traction and connection? And there's a a particular theological way that I develop that in the book.
4: So before we jump into that, I want to back up and just tell me a little bit more personally. So here you are. Obviously, you're not from America. You're from the UK. Yep. Um, and even as you talk about making our faith magnetic, um, the, the kinds of assumptions that we might have about Christianity in the U.K., it's quite different from the context we have in the U.S. And yet uh, there's there's a lot of traction that we're getting on both sides of the pond relative to making our faith magnetic. Yeah. My, my question, though, is first, tell us, your st- how did you become a Christian? What was yeah. your family background? Those kind
0: of things. Uh, so, yeah. So dad's from Guyana in South America, Hindu background, um, although he was kind of culturally Hindu rather than kind of um, practicing but um, it means that I was always very interested in other religions, got converted um, when I was 16 and went to study theology at a very liberal theology and religious studies department. But the, the person who became my doctoral supervisor, a guy called Gavin Costa, he's still probably the world authority on Catholic approaches to other religions. And so mm. I was looking at an, an evangelical um, theologian called Clark Pinnock and what he said about people who never hear the gospel. So my, really my interest was what happens to people who never hear the gospel. And then I did um, uh, some work with the UK equivalent of Intervarsity, just working with theological students. Mm. And then for the last 16 years, I was a lecturer at a seminary in London called Oak Hill Theological College, where I was teaching in religion and culture, um, and moving more into talking about culture in general. Um, and then in the last year, a few years ago, I um, Oak Hill and Acts 29 started uh, something called Crosslands, which is in-context theological kind of uh, training. And so um, we're now completely independent, and I've gone to become one of the directors there of a new thing called Crosslands Forum, which is a centre for cultural engagement where, um, yeah, we're looking at these things uh, all the time. So we provide in-context training for people from discipleship all the way through to PhD. Mm. Great accredited by Southeastern, very close relationship with Bible Mesh uh, Mm. as well. So, yeah, that's some of my background. Married to Ellie, got seven children. In your spare time, Um, I was going to (laughs) say. Married married with seven Seven children. Seven kids and a foster child at the moment as as well, an an 18-month-old, which is – I'm not 25 anymore, so it's kind of – it's tiring, especially for my wife. (laughs) But, yeah, so, uh, yeah, full full life, but really interested in how do we engage not just people who might be said to be religious, but how do we engage everyone and get them to hear – and respond to the claims of Christ.
4: So, uh, in just a second, I want to ask you about J. H. Bovink, who I know is a great inspiration and influence on you. But before that, as as you're thinking about this conversation, make, making our faith magnetic in the U.S. versus the U.K., what are some of the differences that you perceive?
0: Yeah, I mean, people keep on saying to me that you know, the you in know, a, in a, not in a positive way really, but that where the U.K. is at the moment is where the U.S. is heading. Yeah. In terms of however we want to use the term secularism or post christendom or a post secular I mean, there's all kinds of different terms mm. um it does seem to me that there is still a christendom veneer that's still part of institutions here but i i gather that that is changing and it depends where you are in the states um um you know the southern baptist convention for example still has a, millions of people that has a lot of weight yeah. that's very different politically and in terms of finances and resources in the UK. We're a very small, evangelicals are very small, very small p- part of the population. Um, so I think it's much more of a battle. But I wonder whether some of the lessons that we're learning, and again, one of the reasons why I love Southeastern is, and what I want to say to everyone is that everyone studying theology at seminary in the US should be doing stuff on cross-cultural mission. Mm. You know, what does it mean to... Proclaim the orthodox Christian gospel but cross-culturally and what does that mean for things like we should all be doing things on contextualisation yeah. we should all be doing things on how do we engage faithfully without kind of um, it becoming a mush yeah. so um, that's really Im- important so maybe there are some lessons because we're further gone (laughs) in europe than in the u.s but i do think you're starting to see that in some ways um, in 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 lots of ways
4: so perhaps the most positively that i'll hear christians in the uk speak of that is yeah it's gotten darker but the darkness allows light to shine brighter do you see it that way uh
0: yes yes i do i'm i'm always a little bit when people say almost kind of with glee I think oh, that's a bit strong. Oh, isn't it great? We're back to how it used to be in the first century. I don't particularly want to be back in the first mm. century. I mean, mm. 2,000 years of Christian history and yeah. the influence of the gospel is an amazing thing that I thank God for. Yeah. What it does mean, though, is I do think maybe there's a um, a, a different attitude to... not. I, I imagine still here nominal Christianity or the veneer of Christianity or a moral gospel yeah. is probably still... in there yeah. which is different from the real gospel as we know yeah maybe in the uk because we're in a much d- a different state it is more kind of how we how we might say kind of pagan in some ways mm. and that means that nominalism is less of an issue although what's been interesting is you know the way that we've reacted to the death of the queen did show that still there is a kind of a civic christianity that we still have an established church mm. now I don't think those people who are making their pilgrimages to see the queen were they orthodox convicted born again Christians no but I still think there's obviously some yeah. historical residue that's still in the institutions we have yeah. which is probably actually different from the states in some way so yeah. it's kind of both ways really it's a kind of yeah. a really weird sit- situation that we're in yeah. and I think you know the final thing is you know discussed you know your work before about this very famous Catholic theologian, um, philosopher called Charles Taylor, mm. who talks about what does it mean to be in a secular age. And for him, the secular is not simply there are less people going to church. It's about not just about belief, it's about believability. That's right. It's about yeah. how we hold the beliefs that we have, whether we're Christian, atheist, Hindu, uh, witch, I don't know. Um, so um, that's a real issue for discipleship especially. What does it mean that faith is now contested and contestable in a way that it never was. Mm. And I do think there are similarities at that point between US and UK.
4: So you interact with the work of a particular theologian, J. H. Bavink, who uh, is is greatly appreciated even in our circles here. Tell us briefly then who was Bavink and what can we learn from him? Yeah.
0: So J. H. Bavink was a, a missionary. He had a very famous uncle who was a very famous theologian, a guy called Herman Bavink. So, this so was his, just for clarity, yeah, because yes. we, we do want to make this clear, yes. when our
4: folks, if they hear Bob Inc. and they have any yeah. relationship or yes. familiarity, they're thinking Herman Bob yes. Inken, But you're talking about his nephew, J.H. His J nephew, J.H.
0: H. Unfortunately, his name is Johannes Herman Bob <laughs> <laughs> So that's why I call him J.H., just for confusion. Yeah. So he was a missionary in Indonesia, in Java, a Dutch reform missionary, and then ended up teaching missiology at the... Um, um, the Free University of Amsterdam and what's interesting is his book that he wrote called The Introduction to the Science of Missions for many years in conservative seminaries reformed seminaries it was the standard textbook and Ed Clowney who used to teach at Westminster was very in- instrumental in it being translated now the reason I say that is because Clowney um, and, um, was influenced by Bavink, as was a guy called Harvey Con, who's another reformed missiologist who was the teacher of Tim Keller so there's kind of a line of Bavink down to Keller in terms of what's going on. And, and that's why I think Bavink's a very important figure and why I find his work, even though that book was published in 1960, and you think how the world's changed, I still go back to that as my touchstone of this is what a missions textbook looks like in what mission is about, why we do mission, how do we engage, the importance of theological study to understand other religions especially. So I've been, I'm doing a lot in trying to um, revitalize JH Bavink not just for looking at other religions as world religions, but how does his analysis of humanity apply to the secular context which mm. we find ourselves in the UK and the US?
4: So, can you give us ju- just for the students listening Cliff Notes version of his analysis, his thought, his framework?
0: Yeah. So Bavink says, "Look, I look at I look at other religions, and." They're all saying different things, but there seems to be some certain questions that all human beings have. And he calls them magnetic points. Mm. They're like um, it itches that we have to scratch. And he says, even if people don't know them consciously, our lives are answering those questions. And he says there's five magnetic points. Um, and one's about connectedness and identity. One's about having a norm. One's about the need for deliverance. One's about destiny. One's about is there a transcendent higher power? And what Bavink does in his work is he uses that framework to kind of engage other religions Mm. to show how Jesus is the one who who gives us um, connection and deliverance and destiny. So it's trying to say there are these common magnetic points about being human, people in their sin look for these things in all the wrong ways. But how do we connect Jesus to them in the right way? Mm. Now, what I'm trying to do in my work is say that analysis isn't just true for what we, we might say about. African tribal religion or Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam it's true for all human beings the nuns N-O-N-E, those who have no religious affiliation so I'm trying to give some more western examples of the things that people do in their lives every day work play sport their hopes dreams and say the same magnetic points apply so in the book I describe each one of the points then I give a lot of western examples what that might mean for Things like social media or films or Facebook Mm. or, you know, um, how we work or what do we think about um, destiny or all of these issues. um, And then try to show how Jesus then could connect. How do we get that traction that we've been talking about? So, yeah, the magnetic points that Jesus, the gospel, both confronts and connects with.
4: So somebody listening might say, well, that just sounds like apologetics to me. Or it just sounds like mere evangelism strategy, but I think you're talking about something thicker than that. Is that that right?
0: Yeah, I think there's a very solid basis because it's a a way of understanding human beings that, yeah, definitely has apologetic value and is evangelistic. I I, I hope it is evangelistic, but yeah, it's trying to also engage the culture, to read the culture theologically Mm. through these magnetic points and to say that all human beings are religious and... I suppose that one of the advantages of this model is sometimes in evangelism and apologetics, you're waiting for people to ask a problem they have with Christianity and they're just not interested. They've got Mm -hmm. no. Whereas Mm -hmm. this is a much more um, on the front foot way of saying, yes, this person who's in front of me is religious. Yeah. This person is has their own version of what Paul says is the unknown God. And what we need to do is wander around the objects of worship, just as Paul did. Yeah. And show that the unknown God is not simply Jesus. It's saying, where is the confrontation? Because the gospel always confronts, subverts, but the gospel always fulfills as well. It always connects. So it's trying to say, you know, for people who aren't even offended by Christianity, they have no frame of reference. Christianity is just an irrelevance, even if they've heard of Jesus at all. We know they're religious people. And if we can show that actually they are they have hopes and dreams based on these magnetic points then we can bring our the way that Jesus has answered those questions for us to bear
4: so i want to tease out a particular cultural posture that i think that you're representing here so um if i were talking to my parents or grandparents for example and we were talking about an evangelism strategy. That what would come to mind for them are different models that they had memorized or had taught to them that I, that I don't want to degrade at all. I really appreciate and am grateful to have learned things like the Roman's road or various approaches. But it also, there was an assumption in the way that it was presented that was, I'm here to get you saved, to try to protect you from the world, get saved, sit tight, wait for Jesus to come back, forget the world. Um, and then there's another kind of an apologetics approach. What and you said you said your approach is front footed, and I was thinking that very kind of metaphor of an apologetics that's on its heels, ready to defend, mm-hmm. to fight for, and in the right sense, in a sort of um, Peter uh, sense of uh, always be ready in season and out of season to give a defense for the for the faith. But what you're talking about is is much more of a what I would think of as a faith forward or on your toes rather than. Sort of a separatist approach from culture, and all of all of culture is bad or the world is bad, yeah, or that yeah, kind yeah. of thing yeah. you're you're actually highlighting this is the culture that we live in. Um, a lot of our activities in the culture actually speak to these deepest questions yeah. that we have, these magnetic yeah. points, and then you're you're th- sort of thickly and carefully in a sophisticated fashion working through these issues to say look here 's what 's beautiful and good and true about these things because God has made them so." But at the same time, here's the idolatry that sometimes is woven through them. And what you're really aching for in sport and in art and all the rest is Christ. Is that, is that a fair yeah, way good. to represent that? That's a that?
0: very good summary. So I think it's, you could call it cultural apologetics. Yeah. I think two things to note from how you described that, Ben. One is it, it's saying, a, I think, especially because of the suspicion of institutional religion, mm. if people see a technique mm. or people think that we're treating them as a project— yeah even more i mean that's always been the case i think but i think people are very su- suspicious of that so and then i think there's still certain I, I sometimes say look if if you imagine a scale of one to ten and one is people know nothing about christianity and ten is they're willing to do a bible study with you in the uk and maybe in the us i think most christians think that most people are at six or a seven but there are two or three mm. you know paul when he's preaching when they say you're a babbler, we don't know what you're talking about. He's been talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Yeah. But they don't know what he's talking about. So he has to set the frame for us to then to be able to say something. So that's the first point. The second point is, yeah, the gospel, the Christian worldview, and the idolatrous worldview affects everything. Not just what we do on Sundays, not just what we think about, you know, you know, religion narrowly defined, but whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. There's only two ways to live. There's, you know, um, those rooted and built up in Christ and those views of the world not according to Christ. And it's trying to show that actually that's liberating because it means that everything that human beings do is a, is a potentially an evangelistic possibility to say something because people are religious beings living out their lives, living out these magnetic points because we're worshipping beings. Yeah. That's how we've been hardwired. And if we're not worshipping Christ, we will be, be worshipping something else. We, if we're not being formed by Christ... We will be being deformed by something else. Mm. So that gives us great opportunity to talk about the lordship of Christ over all creation.
4: Yeah. You, you used a word a minute ago. You said subversive. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's a, a key theme in your book and in your work generally. How is the gospel subversive? And how does it sort of subversively yeah. Yeah, fulfill yeah. these questions?
0: So the, the the key text I go to, Ben, is always 1 Corinthians 1 here. So um, on the one hand, we preach Christ crucified, foolishness to Jews Um, and greeks and so the the gospel always confronts the gospels the gospel is offensive it always there's always a level of offense because we're asking people to repent and come to christ and we must never forget that but what we sometimes forget is the gospel also connects because in that passage in 1 corinthians 1 paul talks about two ethnic groups jews and greeks jews their hopes dreams worldview is around the idea of um, power jews look for power greeks look for wisdom why does paul make those distinctions you could just say well who cares what they think we just preach christ crucified who care who cares whether i'm preaching the gospel in raleigh durham or in london or in dubai it doesn't matter but paul talks about those two groups who are looking for different things and at the end of that passage in one corinthians one he says that christ is the wisdom of god and the power of god and then we think oh paul you've sold out there's a felt needs gospel well it's not yeah because it's saying on the one hand christ subversively fulfills both wisdom and power in precisely the opposite way that jews and greeks would expect yeah. a crucified messiah is not powerful yeah. a crucified yeah. messiah is not wise but paul still makes the connection and so it's always looking for ways in which the gospel both confronts and connects at the same time and i think traditionally and it's a bit, a bit of a caricature some christians are great at the connection but not good at the confrontation mm. some are great at the confrontation but they're not good at the connection And I think in the cultural situation we're in at the moment, we have to do both. We have to, we're calling people to turn to Christ, but where do we get the traction? Where do we get the connection that people would kind of, yeah, where's the stickiness, I suppose? And that's what I think Paul does in 1 Corinthians 1. I think he models that in Acts 17. There's all other places that we can go to as well.
4: Very practically speaking, here we are, we're in a seminary. We train pastors, missionaries, and people who will be serving and leading in the church. How How does this affect our preaching?
0: yeah well in the book there's a little appendix they got me to write about what does this mean for preaching i the way i liken it to is this the puritans they used to have these very elaborate preaching grids where they had you know 25 ways to apply this passage and it might be that these magnetic points that i'm talking about in your preparation as you're expounding scripture you're thinking, well, this is the way that the Bible talks about people. What's the magnetic point? What's the itch here that my congregation might be really dealing with at the moment? We're not imposing on the text. It's going to come out of the text. Mm. And we wouldn't talk about it in the sermon. But it might be helpful in our preaching and proclamation because we know that these are the itches that people have. Mm -hmm. They're thinking about connection and norm and destiny and deliverance in all these different ways. And this just might be helpful to get a sharpened focus to be able to engage the people in front of us not at thirty thousand feet where we just talk about a generic christ crucified but what does christ crucified mean for this particular congregation in this particular locality and that's why you know again i keep on saying it in the few days i've been here or it doesn't matter what seminary you're at whether you're going to the traditional mission field or not we all need to be doing this cross-cultural work because we're all in in an increasingly cross-cultural situation yeah
4: so, what does it mean for our preaching? I'm curious as well. You're a, you're a dad of seven children and a foster child. What is this? What does this kind of approach mean for our parenting and how we form our own kids?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the kind of. My kids say, "Oh, Dad, you're not going on about that culture stuff. The <laughs> film's just a film, so don't worry." I hear that all the time. I think it is trying to. Get them to, people to engage critically. Sometimes mm. that's just watching. So, and I always say, like the some of the worst stuff, especially on television, is not the explicit kind of violence or swearing or whatever. although That's bad. It's things like Disney, it's sentimental, it's the yeah. sentimental way yeah. of viewing the world, and just to be able to kind of quietly prick the bubble sometimes and say life's not really like that, or you know, there's a uh, yuck factor to it. It's those kinds of ways yes. that you're trying to get, you're trying to bring reality as you're watching some of these shows, and you're yeah. thinking this is this is not reality. Yeah, you and have to dispel so, yeah, the myths exactly, and the lies yeah, and so yeah, on.
4: Exactly. Uh, what I probably, uh, what my kids get tired of hearing me talk about is the the follow your heart lie, that is Hallmark's favorite thing. Which I you know, I kind of enjoy Hallmark season. We talk about that as the Christmas season. <laughs> yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or even. Um, the sort of enchantment of Disney Disney movies yeah, yeah. and those yeah, kind of yeah. things. And there's there's much to appreciate, but yeah. at the same time, the sort of follow your heart and um, just sort of the, the overly idealistic approach to everything. You yeah, do, yeah. We do have to kind of pop that bubble. Oh, wheel, definitely. And I think, you know, kids.
0: idols, what, we, what we're trying to do is throw a bucket of cold water. I mean, if, I mean idolatry is really living in a fantasy world. Mm. And mm. what sometimes in all kinds of different creative ways, it's kind of waking people up and saying, this isn't reality, is it? Yeah. Now, we need to be creative in how we do that. And, uh, you know, as uh, one of your poets said, Emily Dickinson, you know, tell it slant. And I think sometimes we need to do it in very indirect ways. But I think it is important that, yeah, we're popping the bubble of idolatry. Yeah,
4: yeah. Oh, that's really well said. So uh, our annual theme this year at the Center for Faith and Culture is, is formation, spiritual yep. formation, yep. human formation, yep. Christian formation. Um, all that you're doing in this book, how does it apply to formation.
0: Well that's a that is a brilliant question because the penny has dropped for me the book the book was marketed and actually the book became, came out of lectures I was doing in seminary on evangelism and apologetics and one day a student put their hand up and she said look this is such great stuff but really isn't this about discipleship that's to say these magnetic points first we should be applying them to our own hearts mm. first yeah. and then we should be applying it to others mm. that is to say our evangelism has to flow from our discipleship. Mm. If we see evangelism as a thing that we do, or people as projects that I'm doing evangelism, no. How am I pulled away every day by Christ, by other things rather than Christ? You know, the end of one John: keep yourself from idols. How am I connect wanting other connections? How do I look for other deliverances? And then when I apply that to my heart, then I know that the people who I'm dealing with are in the same culture. They're struggling with the same things that I am. I can then say how Christ has done that for me. But that means we need to stay close to Christ. Yeah. So the final bit of the book is, if if we talk about the magnetic points, we talk about Jesus, the magnetic person, the last bit of the book is, how do we become magnetic people? And a pastor friend of mine said, they read the end of the book and they meant this as a compliment. They said it was a massive anticlimax. I said, what? And he said, well, no, all you're saying is the way that we stay magnetic Is the ordinary means of grace. Mm. It's the weekly gathering. It's hearing the word. It's coming under it's coming under church discipline. It's the sacrament. It's those are the ways if you imagine it, the church is like a big army medical tent and the pastors are like the army medics. And every week they send people out, they go onto the field and they're bloodied and they're hungry and they're disorientated. And we come back every week. And we're fed, we're bandaged, we're reorientated, we're remagnetized and sent out. Mm. And you know what? Then we have to do it again and yeah. again. Yeah. So it's the ordinary means of grace. There's no magic bullet, but that's how we stay magnetized. Now, the importance of that is when we are magnetized, then other people will see Christ in us. Mm. There's nothing worse than a a d as a weak magnet on a fridge that slips down. And mm. our, our lives can be like mm. that. So really, the, book's, almost the book is as much about how do we apply this? framework to ourselves first for the sake of our evangelism mm. and so i think that's all about spiritual formation the more that we the more that we are close to christ the more others will be attracted as they see christ in us
4: amen well said so the the title of the book is making faith magnetic dr strange where can listeners find your book and how can they follow your work yeah it's
0: available at all good christian bookshops on, on amazon it's published by the good book company you'll be able to find it on there um and uh If you Google my name and magnetic points, if you're interested, there'll be other think talks that I've given on on the subject. There's even a a kind of an email address. If you read the book and you find out your own magnetic points, please email me. I'm trying to get a compendium of people who have been sending me examples all over the world of where they've seen the magnetic points and um so yeah my dream for the book is look your local church you'd get a group of people together read the book it's meant to be accessible i hope i think it is and work out what does this mean for you in your local community mm, yeah where do the magnetic points resonate with where you're at and i'd love um i'd love churches all over the the country and all over the world to be doing that
4: that's fantastic dr strange the real dr strange thank you for joining us today thanks ben
1: And now it's time for On My Bookshelf. Megan, we talked with you earlier about food allergies, but what's on your bookshelf right now?
3: Right now, and for the past few weeks, I've been spending time in Cyril of Alexandria's commentary on the Gospel According to John. And that's, the title sounds intimidating, but it is not. It is lovely and devotional. Cyril was a, a bishop in the early church, and he was also a teacher, and he wrote this commentary for new converts. And so this was one of the ways to introduce them to the, the ways of the church, and especially his preface. He talks about his thinking through approaching this commentary, and he has this analogy from, he uses the sacrificial system from the Old Testament, where he says, you know, some people, if they could afford it, they would bring a ram. If they can't afford a ram, they would bring a goat. If they can't afford a goat, then maybe two turtle doves. And he says, you know, I'm so poor, all I could bring is flour and oil. But in this commentary, what I'm doing is bringing my flour and my oil. And I'm going to trust that God is going to do his work with what I can bring. And that's just been a sweet thing as I've approached my own time in the Word, or my own paper writing even for school, that I feel very poor, and all I have to bring is flour and oil. Um, But I can trust that the Lord will do that.
1: That is fantastic. Tell the listeners again where they might be able to find a copy of this commentary.
3: Yeah, so um, Ancient Christian Texts has a new translation of it. It's translated by David Maxwell, and you can find it on Amazon or anywhere else the books are found.
1: Thank you, Megan. And thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed it, and I know you did, then give us a five-star rating. Review it on your Apple podcast or whatever podcast you're listening to and share it with a friend. Now, we're going to take off next week for Thanksgiving, but we'll have a new episode on December 2nd. Have a great Thanksgiving.